You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew 22. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. I know that uh, we've been in this for a while, but we, we believe in teaching through the Bible verse by verse and uh, book by book. So we uh, look forward to our time this morning in this new chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> you can follow along as I read our text for us this morning out of Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves and have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This morning, I want you to know that you're invited to this feast. (laughs) You're invited. Uh, This parable that Jesus tells us here in this text is basically a third parable in his judgment against the religious leaders and the people who were gathered there before him. Uh, They questioned his authority. And the multitudes basically surrounded him. They were in awe of his power, and they thought that he did teach as one having authority. But when he started to question some of the traditions of the Pharisees and their legalistic tendencies, uh, they got a little upset with him, you might say. And so the people were taking in Jesus' teaching, and they were, for a time at least, behind him. And they were in all of the miracles that he did. And they were obviously appreciative of the fact that he did all this for free, not like some of the charlatans that are out there today, charging to get into their meetings and different things like that. On the contrary, our Lord gave freely to all those. And he fed them miraculously several times. And they obviously admired this humble servant of God. 
And they embraced him for a time as the coming one, the Messiah. The only problem was they were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for somebody who could free them from the bondage of Rome. And Jesus was not their political Messiah. And they quickly came to understand that. And their acclamations and hosannas quickly turned to rejection, as we've seen. Now, just to give you a little bit of historical context, remember this is Wednesday, the day of Passion Week, the day that Christ will die. Two days from now on Friday, he will give up his life. It's the last week of our Lord's life and ministry here on earth. Friday he'll be crucified. Sunday he'll be raised from the dead. But for three years he's been preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom over and over and over again. And that's the message of the Gospel of Matthew, that the King has come. He has been proclaiming himself as Messiah. He's been giving evidence to that fact. He's been giving evidence that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And he's been offering himself and his kingdom to the people of Israel. His own people, the very called chosen people of God. But now the three years has come to a conclusion... And the people's praise and adulation of Christ has turned to rejection. The leaders clearly have rejected him. And they're even hostile to the ministry of Christ and to him as a person. And by Friday, they will turn him over to the Romans for execution. Now remember, on Saturday, he arrived in Jerusalem with a multitude of people for the festivities of the Passover. He stayed in the home of of, uh, in Bethany there, outside of Jerusalem, because there probably wasn't a room within the city walls because it was just teamed with people. And he stayed with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had just raised from the dead. On Sunday, when he awoke, a great multitude of people came out from Jerusalem to meet him in Bethany, and he spent the day there with them. On Monday, we recall learning that he told his disciples to go and find the colt, and he rode into Jerusalem on Monday. Not We know it's We call it Palm Sunday, but it actually happened on Monday. Um, He rode into Jerusalem on the back of the fowl of a donkey. And he uh, entered the the city through the eastern gate. And the people were praising him. Hosanna, hallelujah, save now, the the whole bit. They were hailing him as Savior. But the kind of Savior that he was, they didn't want. Like I just said, they wanted a political leader. They wanted somebody who was going to come in and take over militaristically the Romans and defeat them. But remember, he went instead, he didn't go to the fort, the Roman fort, Antonius, he went to the temple. That's where his little parade ended that Monday. Well, Tuesday, Monday night, he went back to Bethany to stay with his friends. Tuesday, he came right back to the temple itself, and he attacked the religious system as it was set up. He cleansed the temple, and we've seen that. And he basically ran out the money changers. He turned it from, who had turned the house of God, the house of prayer, into basically a den of robbers, the Bible says. And so he cleansed it on Tuesday. And now this is Wednesday, and he's right back there in the temple. It's almost like he had to clean it out before he could minister there. It's cleansed. He's there. He's come. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the kingdom. He's preaching the good news of salvation. 
He's come to call men, women, children to himself. And he's walking around the temple yard there teaching the people who were gathered there. And as he teaches, the crowd collects around him. The people are listening and there's masses of people. And the religious leaders were visibly upset. And they wanted to know by what authority he did these things. They thought that he was moving in on their corner of the market. They didn't like it. And in verse 3 of chapter 21, they stop him right in the middle of his teaching. And they say, by what authority do you do these things? Pretty bold. In other words, what they were asking for is, show us your credentials. Give us your papers. Where's your, who's the rabbi that ordained you to do this? They were angry. They were upset. They were hostile. And they were already planning his death, the Bible says. And so, he doesn't answer them directly. He answers them in the form of three parables. And the first one, in verse 28 to 32 of chapter 1, is a parable of two sons. The second one we looked at was a parable about a vineyard who leased it out to some farmers in verses 33 to 46. Well, this is the third parable of judgment that the Lord is giving to his hearers. And the parables basically take the simple, everyday, common things, that's what a parable is, and it implies a spiritual truth to it. It teaches them something spiritual through an everyday thing. He used vineyards, he used the sun, he used the dirt, he used the ground, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. Jesus was a master at using parables to teach. And all of his parables so far validate his claim that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. And basically, he's at a point in time where he has to say, you know what? I've gone over this with you over and over and over and over again, religious leaders. Everything I've done, you've seen the miracles I've done, you haven't discounted them. You said I've done them, but you attribute them to the power of Satan, not to the power of God. That's how hard their hearts were. And so he's trying to teach them. He's trying to bring them along, and they're just not having any of it. Well, this is basically the the final straw, you might say. And the, the tables are turned, and these parables are parables of judgment. And this one is very climatic in the, in the three parables. If you were standing there as a religious leader listening to this parable, you would just be astonished at what he's saying. Now look at what he says in verse 22. He says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Parable is just a simple figure. It's a story. It's an analogy to convey a spiritual truth. Well, look at the king's announcement. How it was sent. He tells him this parable. And it's the idea of a parable of the same kind. It's another parable of judgment. Verse 2 says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Just stop right there for a second and ask the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is he talking about? We've gone over this before. But just so you have a clear understanding, this parable is talking about the, the sphere of God's rule, where God's will 
dominates, where he is sovereign, where God is king. If you want a simplified version of it, it basically speaks of the place where God's gracious redemption is there, his salvation. The kingdom is a place where God rules and where God's servants live. It's a spiritual kingdom. Now, some people say, well, does this refer to the millennial kingdom? Does this refer to this or that? It's not really talking about a specific time. There's different elements to the kingdom of God. It's the community, basically, of people who are redeemed, who've come to salvation, who are under the rule and the guide of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because if you think about it, when you speak of the kingdom of God, there's a present aspect of the kingdom, right? I mean, we're living it out here. There's a future millennial kingdom that's going to come when Christ comes and returns and rules and reigns here on earth for a thousand years. There's also an eternal element to the kingdom, heaven. Because God is going to rule and reign in heaven. There's even a past element where God ruled in the Old Testament through his patriarchs and his kings and his judges and, and all that. That was kind of the, the king, kingdom of, of God on earth, you might say. But it's, it's the kingdom of God. It's the sphere of God's rule by grace and salvation. Well, it talks about this son's wedding being planned in the first two verses. You see a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And just to make it simple, the king is God. The son is obviously referring to Christ. The invited guests initially were the Jews of Israel. And the servants that he speaks of in the parable are basically those who go out and preach the gospel. John the Baptist, Jesus himself did that. The apostles. All those are represented by those different people. But you you have to understand, when they came to the point in time in their culture where it came for a wedding feast, okay, this was not, I mean, I've heard some some, uh, people complain, you know, when their kids get married, oh, they got to pay for the the rehearsal dinner. They got to, this, that's nothing compared to what these folks had to deal with. Okay, you're talking on an average of seven days. This party would go on, basically, this feast. In some cultures, they still do that. Somebody gets married, you have an ongoing event for several days, and you have family coming, you have lots of food, and just, you know, it's a, it's a good celebration. Well, that's what their culture was like. And so he says the kingdom of, God, of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, if you were giving a wedding feast for your son, trust me, it would be a big event, especially if you were the king. I mean, think about it. Just, I mean, you know, you have some people over in England, all right, and they get married. Well, the world just comes, goes crazy about it. You know, it's on every channel, and people are just going goo goo gaga over it, and everybody's getting romantic. Oh, isn't how sweet? You know, look at they got married. I mean, it's a wedding. Come on, you know. But whose wedding was it? Okay, these are royalty we're talking about in the eyes of most of the world, and so it's a big event. It would be like being invited to the president's daughter's wedding. All right? Kind of in our modern day vernacular, that's what it would be like. And the kingdom, though, is this this community of those who are redeemed. Now, this, this 
the son's wedding, the king planned this. Okay, this isn't something you throw together. It's not like, hey, come after, come over to the house after church, we'll have some pizza and watch it again. No, it's not like that at all, okay? I mean, you're talking about weeks of planning, especially back in their culture, because, you know, you couldn't really prepare the food a lot of times in advance. So it took a lot of planning and preparation for a lot of this stuff. Because you, when the time came for the feast, you had to have things ready to go. Now, the sun obviously represents Jesus. In Revelation 19.9, it says, Then he said to me, write, and this is John, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, one day we will be at a feast like this. If you're redeemed, if you're trusted in Christ. And so you have this king who's throwing this big gallant affair for his son who's getting married. And it says in verse 3, And he sent his servants to call those... Notice what it says, who were invited to the wedding feast. They already got the, 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 the invitation. It's not like he's going out to invite them now. They already have the invitation. He already sent the invitation out. He's just letting them know everything's ready. Come on. And that's what you would do back in that culture. You would send out an invitation and say, hey, you know what? Next week I'm having a big wedding feast for my thing. And maybe they'll give a general day, maybe they won't. But then the servants would go out from the king's palace and they would let everybody know, hey, now's the time, come and get it. It's kind of like a dinner call. Well, that's exactly what happened here. He sent out his servants to call those who were previously invited to the wedding feast. But look at what it says in verse 3. But they would not, what? Come. They would not come. They were, had an invitation in their pocket for an event, but they would not come. Obviously, they accepted the invitation. Because if they didn't accept the invitation, why would he waste his time with his servant going back to invite him again? That's not what he did. And in verse 4, we see that he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited... I have everything prepared. Think about this. This is a a, a big event, folks. And everything is on the table. Everything's ready. His, His oxen, his fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It was fully prepared. The king's announcement was clearly scorned by these people. Clearly scorned. Who are these people? Who are these invited guests? Well, if you do some study, it's not too hard to figure out. Remember who he's talking about. He's talking about the religious leaders. He's talking to them as well as the other people gathered there. But who are these people who are called in verses 3 and 4? I mean, they've, they've already been invited. Now he's just sending out the, the dinner bell ring and they're, they're not coming. Who are the people of God? Who are the chosen people of God throughout Scripture? Israel. Okay, it can only be one group of people. The Jews. Israel. You can start all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 where God calls out of the loins of Abraham the people of Israel and said, I'm going to make 
out of your loins a great nation, a nation through whom the earth will be blessed, and anyone who blesses them will be blessed, and anyone who curses them will be cursed. And they shall be as the sand of the sea and the stars of heaven. And you know what? God has stayed true to that promise. You look, if you're into history, you look throughout history, you look at who's come against Israel. See where they've ended up. Sad thing is, I believe one day our country will turn its back on Israel, and I think that'll be the final nail in the coffin of the United States of America, because to my knowledge, there's no mention of the United States of America in prophecy whatsoever in the end times. Probably be gobbled up by another nation. Hard to believe that. I mean, this is a wonderful nation. But you can see how we've systematically dismantled our founding father's claims to any kind of deity. And they've systematically, whether it's taking prayer and the mention of God out of schools to abortion, I mean, right down the line. Now you've got to have a court case to show a little you know, picture of Jesus in a manger in a public place. It's ridiculous. But that's how far we've fallen down the, into the gutter, really. But he called out this special nation, Israel. The servants, we said, are the people like John the Baptist and Jesus who had gone, gone out, the apostles even, sent out two by two. And the king basically says, here's my son, here's my kingdom. I want you to come and enjoy my son in, in, in honor of him. And he sends out these, these preachers. Well, look at what happens to them. It says, I prepared my dinner, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his businesses. And then look at what happened. The rest of them seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. I mean, at this point, the religious leaders and even the people listening to Jesus tell this parable are going, this is, I mean, what a story this is. I mean, this is like, could this really happen? Who would do this? I mean, you can think of a lot of reasons why you would refuse an invitation from a king to a dinner party, right? I mean, first of all, it'd probably be good food. He's the king, all right? There's probably a lot of entertainment going on. It'd probably be a fun time. But then also, you know, there's something about being a king that really carries a little bit of weight. And if you... Don't obey the king. What happens? Okay? So, I mean, just self-preservation would kick in at some point. And you say, well, how does that refer? Okay, the servants are... Well, stop and think about what happened to the servants of Christ. What happened to John the Baptist? Got his head cut off. They killed Christ. James was the first apostle to go. He was beheaded. And it was right down the line. They were all martyred to some degree. You look throughout history, even in countries today, they're martyring Christian pastors. See, I see two different groups here that Jesus is referring to, the people that would not come. I mean, there are those who are indifferent. 
There are those who, you know, basically, hey, you know what? I'm going to go work on my farm. I'm going to come to your lousy party. Or I'm going to go do this. Or I've got to tend the store. Sorry, I can't make it. You know, th- those are the people that are just in, indifferent, you might say. They're, they're, they're kind of secular in their mindset. God has no place in their life. I mean, if you want to do it, go ahead. They don't care. But don't, you know, encourage them because they, they just don't have time for it. They're preoccupied with the farm or with merchandise. They're people that are indifferent to the gospel. They're the secular people. The people that don't acknowledge God. They're, they're focused on their stuff. Their little corner of the kingdom, you might say. They hang around the stuff. They think that somehow they're going to pack it all in the casket when they go. It doesn't happen that way. They're so interested in earthly matters, they have no time for heavenly issues. They're so swept up with the material goods, they have no thought about spiritual afterlife. They're so busy with their businesses, they don't take time to understand the salvation that is so freely offered to them through Christ. These folks were so caught up with their farm and their business, their shop, they couldn't come to the celebration. They found satisfaction in the pursuit and gain of finding satisfaction in wealth. They're the secular people. Now, there's another group of people, though, and these are the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were basically creating a false religion before the people. They were maintaining a false religion. They had taken Judaism, they had taken God's people had taken the law of God and they perverted it to such a degree that it was an offense to God. See, they're the people that are hostile. They're the people that are after Jesus' head. The other people are just like, hey, you know what, I don't have time to come, sorry. (laughs) Go have your party, I really don't care. You know, these are the people, the, the false religious people are the people that they may not even be in, a, in an organized religion, but they've created a religion for themselves, the religion of self. And when you say anything about it, and you talk to them about Christ being the only way to salvation, the, the, you know, they just can't handle it. They become very hostile. Have you ever talked to somebody like that? They get angry. They get mad at you. How could you be so narrow-minded? How could, you know, and they're just very frustrated people. Well, you see these two refusals to the party. One was unwilling to come. The other one basically was so caught up in their religion, I think, their false religion, that they, they had it in for Christ because they felt that he was moving in on their section of the market as far as religion goes. Mark 4.18 says this, Now these are the ones sown among thorns, They are the ones who hear the word of God and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of the other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Mark 4, 18 to 19. 
They were so selfishly preoccupied with the personal concerns of profit that the invitation to a king's son's wedding was ignored altogether. And the other people basically just hated the king. Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 7 to 8 says this, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The idea is, you know what, if you're in the flesh, if you're not in the spirit, if you haven't come to Christ as Lord and Savior, you're, you're at odds with your creator. There's no other way to say it. You're at odds with him. You're on the opposite team. Well, look at the king's anger as this kind of unfolds before us. They seize his servants, they treat him shamefully, and then they even kill him. In verse 7 it says, the king was angry. And you say, well, I thought the king was God. It is. You don't think God gets angry? (laughs) God gets angry. There's such a thing as rightful indignation, righteous anger. He's angry, he never sins, he's perfect in every way. You don't want to fall into the hands of an angry God. Verse 7, it says, The king was angry, and he sent his troops. These are more specialized troops. It's not hundreds of guys. It's kind of a specialized group of men that go out and take care of the king's business. And it says that he destroyed those murderers, and he burned their city. Wow. Who would have thought 70 A.D.? What happened to Jerusalem? Burned, destroyed, lost the temple, lost everything. His anger, first of all, I want you to understand this, is just. It's just. See, we serve a patient God. We serve a God who is more than willing to, to, to you know, be patient with us. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, O Lord are a God, listen to this, full of what? Compassion, it says. And gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. I mean, I don't know about you, but aren't you glad that we serve a God that's compassionate and gracious and long-suffering in mercy and truth? There are limits to his patience, though. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, it says this, The Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Verse 7 says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words... What he's saying is, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm patient. But, I mean, you continue down a certain road in life. I mean, there, there's a point in time where I just got to go, okay, man, you're on your own. And that's where Jesus was with the religious leaders of his day. I mean, these are men who took the word of God and they perverted it and they used it for their own benefit. They used it to exalt themselves and not Christ. And I'll tell you, man, you, you look at the church today and you look at some of the, the, the so-called charlatans that are out there and you wonder, man, I would not want to be them. 
on the day of judgment. I mean, it's one thing to just take advantage of somebody. It's another thing to take advantage of the people of God and to do it with malice in your heart with the idea that you're going to take advantage of these people, take their money, using false claims to do so, and spending it on your own worldly desires. That's what some of these guys do. It's amazing. God is patient. But there are limits to his patience. His punishment is just. It says there that they, he sent out his troops. These are like a specialized group, like I said. But they did exactly what the king ordered. The troops both destroyed the murderers responsible for killing, and they set their city on fire. Just wiped them out completely. And it was in AD 70 that Titus, the Roman general, took a hold of Jerusalem and, and did exactly that. Took it over. I mean, at this point in the parable, the religious leaders, as well as the people, are probably thinking, this is, this is like a fairy tale. This, is, this can't happen. This is impossible. Who would do such a thing? Then he said, in verse 8 it says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So you have this dilemma. King sent out the invitations. The people that were invited previously weren't going to come. It says they weren't worthy. What do you mean they weren't worthy? Isaiah 64, 6 says, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our unrighteousness is like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. There's a confession there that's saying, hey, you know what? We're all unworthy. We're all unworthy. Don't think for a minute, if you're a Christian, that you deserve to be a Christian. You don't walk away, walk around pumping your chest out saying, hey, look at me, I'm a Christian. And I'm a Christian because, you know, I am who I am. That's the problem with the church today. There's a lot of people that are walking around thinking they're, they're believers. They don't know the first thing about serving God. They don't know the first thing about sacrificing for God. They don't know the first thing about humility or humbleness. And yet, all along, they're professing. They're professing Christ. You see that kind of confession all over the place. Well, he, he gives them a, you might say, a great commission in verse 9. He says, look, these people aren't going to come, but I want you to go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding to the wedding feast as many as you find. As many as you find. Hosea chapter 2.23 says, Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. Remember, in the beginning when the, 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 this, the parable of the two sons and the one son said, oh, I'll do what, what you say, Father, but he didn't do it. 
And yet the other father said, I'm not going to, or the other son said, I'm not going to do it. But then he repented and he went and did it. And then last week we saw how the, the parable with the, uh, the, uh, the vine, the, the owner of the, the vineyard, and he leased it out to these guys. And he sent his servants back to get the, the, uh, his share. And they beat him up and killed him. And then he sent his own son and they killed him too. I mean, this parable is saying a similar thing. He's saying, look, I've given you every opportunity. I've shared with you the truth. But there comes a point in time where it says, you're not my people. He's going to go to the people who are not his people and say, you know what? You're my people. And they're the people that are going to respond, you are my God, Hosea says. Mark 16, 15 says that we're to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, right? That's what we're called to do. We don't go out and look for the best dressed or the, 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 the most likely to come or anything like that. No, it says everybody. We go out and we invite all people. Then it says in verse 10, those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all those they found. And then look at what it says. Both what? Good and bad. So you have this great congregation of people that are gathered. And where did they go to get them? They went out into the highways, one translation says, into the byways. Well, how do you do that? You know what? We're called to seek them. We're called to invite them. We're called to compel them. And the people that came were both good and bad people. See, God always extended his call for salvation to both evil and good people. You don't stop and say, well, that guy's a bad guy. I'm not going to share Christ with him. Why would you do that? Both good and bad in the world's view are still bad in God's eyes, right? None of them have any righteousness. Both are equally in need of salvation, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, it gives a result of their obedience. It says this in Revelation, After these things I looked, and behold, listen to this, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are the people who were invited. The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever. Okay, he invited them all. And that's, that's what, what, what God desires from us as his people. He doesn't want us just to come to church and play church and then, you know, go home and that's it. I mean, you have to understand there's a lost and dying world out there on its way to hell, and we are called to bring the message of salvation to their ears at least. It's God's business to take it to their heart, but we have to bring it to their ears. And it says in verse 10 that the wedding hall was filled with guests. Have you ever been to a party where, you know, maybe it's a dinner party, maybe it's whatever, where nobody showed up? Nobody. 
I know when I was a youth pastor, I used to do some events and, you know, put a lot of time and effort in planning certain things, and you get all these churches invited, whatever comes for the night, and, you know, you're expecting maybe 100 people, and you end up with 10. I mean, it just sucks the life right out of you. There's nothing worse than that. You know, this just shows the love and the, 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 the prayerfulness and the, the graciousness of our God is that he didn't slam the door in their face when they wouldn't come. He said, you know what? No, we're going to make this thing happen. You go out and you invite some other folks. So they're all gathered there in this, this place, this big hall, you might say, filled with guests. And the king comes in, probably a big entourage with him. He comes in and all the guests are there. And it's not the guests that he originally invited, you know, all dressed up in the religious garb and all that. Now, these are, these are people that are you know, just off the street, you might say. It says in verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. Now, let me explain. In their culture, whenever you went to an event like this, if you didn't have the proper attire, you know what the king would do? He would give you the proper attire because he was a king. (laughs) You know, that's just the way it worked. And so everybody at these events were expected to meet the king's standard as far as dress and behavior and whatnot. That's just because you're at the king's event. And so they all would have been offered this so-called wedding garment. But you notice that the king, when he came in, he looked at the guests and he saw that there was just one man who had no garment. You know, God sees things, beloved, that sometimes we think we can hide. I mean, think about it. You're in a hall of people. How is the king even? He's like, I'm not going to put on this stupid little wedding garment he gave me. You know, I'm just going to wear my own stuff. I'm going to do it my way. I'm still in here. Look at all the other fools dressed up. (laughs) I don't have to do that. Self-styled man. Prideful. Sin. The king comes in. Nothing escapes the king's eye. Nothing. Luke 12 Verses 2 and 3 says, For there is nothing covered that will be not revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. See, this guy tried to come to this wedding feast on his own terms. God said, Hey, here's the way of salvation. Jesus Christ, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, by him. That's what, that's what Christ said. That's what, that's what God says. But this kind of person says, well, okay, that's good, but I'm just going to do it my own way. I hear what you're saying, but nah, this, I'm, I'm not going to bend to that. I'm going to come to the Lord on my own terms. It's saying that there are people who try to crash the kingdom party. There's people who try to crash through the gates. When we were back visiting my daughter and son-in-law and the kids, they live on an army base, Fort Belvoir, in uh, Alexandria there. And whenever you go on that base, you have to have you have to show them your ID. You don't have to have a military ID. You can just show them your driver's license. And one morning, I took Will very early in the morning to the metro station because he was going to go to work down in D.C. and take the train and 
I dropped them off, and I was on my way back, and I had my ID, and I even stopped and bought the kids some uh, Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, so I was kind of excited to get back home, and, and I go up to the first gate that was there. I'm thinking, okay, this is the closest. Drive up there, and, uh, you know, he has a military ID on his car, so the guy probably didn't think anything. I pulled up. My head shaved, so he's probably thinking, okay, this guy looks kind of like military. And he goes, your ID, sir? I give my driver's license. And he looks at me and he goes, where's your military ID? I said, uh, I don't have a military ID. And I kind of started laughing. I said, I, you know, I just come on. He goes, well, you've never come through this gate with just your California driver's license. You have to have military ID to come in in this gate. Now, you can go down two miles down the road. There's another gate. You can, you can go through there. They'll let you through. But you can't come through this gate. See, I was rejected. <laughs> he goes, now, you've got to do a U-turn. And they were all watching me do the U-turn and then, you know, exit and go back down and do it the right way. Okay. I couldn't just step on the gas and say, yeah, pal, whatever, and take off. I would not be your pastor. I'd be in jail. All right? Today we have people that are trying to make their own way into the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, here's what you need. Here's what the, the wedding garment kind of is an example of or, or symbolizes. He says in Matthew 5.20, and we've gone through this, he says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Remember we talked about that and we said, what is necessary for you to get into heaven? What is necessary to, to breach that gate at the kingdom of heaven? What is it? It's righteousness. It's righteousness. You need a form of righteousness. And a righteousness different, he says, than the scribes and Pharisees. Because what was their righteousness like? Theirs was a self-righteousness, right? They dressed up in their garb and they trusted in all the rules and regulations and all the people looked at them and praised them and thought, oh, wow, you know, look at me, I'm somebody. They were all about themselves. Their righteousness came from themselves, And what Jesus was saying in that text was, you know what, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds this false righteousness that they have. You have to have a God-given righteousness. That's the only way that you can get through that gate. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. In other words, you're not going to get into God's presence without some form of holiness and righteousness. It's just not going to happen. Job 29, 14 says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. See, that's what happens when we come to Christ. He clothes us in Christ's righteousness. We don't march to heaven because we're a good little Christian or we're a Baptist or a Methodist or whatever and stand there and go, oh, let me in because, you know, I'm a good person. No. Because we're not. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. We've all told a lie. We've all taken something irrespective of its value. We've all maybe lusted in our hearts at one point. I mean, you know, we've all done things that are, that are wrong in God's eyes. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And listen to this. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He had covered me with the robe of what? Righteousness. See, that's what you need if you're going to breach that gate. You're not going to make it on your own. 
And trust me, the religious leaders who were listening to Jesus, they knew what he was talking about. They knew what a wedding garment was. They knew what the, the righteousness of a, of a robe was. They understood that. It was symbolism. Proverbs 14.12 says there's a way that seems right to men. But what? The end is the way of death. We're not just talking physical death here. We're talking spiritual death, separation, forever, eternity between man and God, ever. It's over. Lights out. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus once again paints this picture for us in verse 21 to 23. He's talking about having fruit in your life and whether you know it's a good fruit or a bad fruit or a good tree or a bad tree and all this stuff. In verse 20, he says, you're going to recognize people by their fruits. And then he says this in verse 21. Look at what it says. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Not everyone who says to me, they make a profession of faith, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what? What's it say? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And look at it, they start listing their good works. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? They didn't even do it in their own name. They did it in the Lord's name. And didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never... Emphasis, ever, ever, ever knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did they have works? Yeah, they did. Were they good folks? Sure, they're up there helping people, casting out demons, I mean, prophesying, doing mighty works. They weren't even doing it for themselves. They were doing it, obviously, in the Lord's name. But what was wrong? Something was missing. See, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. And notice he says there in verse 23 of Matthew 7, he doesn't say, oh, I knew you at one time and then you walked away from me. Or, oh, I, I knew you when you were younger and then, you know, when you raised that hand or you walked that aisle, but then, you know, you got caught up in your sin and then I didn't know you anymore. No, he didn't say that. You know, there's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints that we believe in heartily. You don't get your salvation, lose your salvation, get your salvation, lose your salvation. Either God has saved you or he hasn't. And if he has saved you, you're going to recognize it. Because why? You'll recognize them by their fruit. You don't have to walk away scratching your head saying, gee, you know, I just don't know. I mean, that person says some things, but I just don't know. You know, I wonder if they're saved or not. If you look at every person in the New Testament who Jesus came into contact with and they were converted, they were saved, everybody knew it. Nobody walked away going, hmm, well, that's a question of bone. We don't know about that. 
Why? Because it was evidenced in their life. God transformed them. It's not like they put on a new, you know, turned over leaf and put on a new whatever self and, and, you know, tried to become something they're not. That's not it. When you come to Christ, you have to die to yourself. You have to be willing to say, you know what? There's no other way for me to be saved other than the grace of God. And when this guy busted into the party here and he's sitting there in his regular clothes without the wedding garment, the king, he stands right out. He says, hey, wait a minute, pal. Look at how he approaches him. Back to Matthew 22. He said to him, look at how he approaches him, friend. See the patience, the goodness of God. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He doesn't just grab the guy and throw him out. He says, hey, you know what? Uh, Tell me something, friend. Because you're here at my party, you're you're my son's wedding feast. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And look at what happens. It says he was what? Speechless. Speechless. That kind of insinuates that he had no excuse. He probably had the wedding garment crumbled up in a little ball under his chair. I ain't going to wear that stupid thing. Look at all these other fools. They're all dressed up. <laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm, I'm part of this feast too. I don't have to bow to this guy's wishes. I can do whatever I... What is that? It's pride. It's rebellion. You know, it's funny. When we come to spiritual matters, we can run our lives that way. There are people that look at God's law and say, you know, I don't care. Try that at work. Next time you go to work and your boss tells you to do something, just say, eh, you know what? I don't want to do it. I'll be in my office. See how long you last there. You're not going to be a good employee as a rebellious employee. You're not going to be, you're not going to get it. You're not going to be part of what your company is trying to do. If we live that way in society, where do we end up? We end up in prison. Okay? Why can't we get it through our head when God says something, he means it? When he says that his son is the only way of salvation, you're not going to save yourself by doing good works. You're not going to save yourself by being nice to people or giving to the poor or whatever, praying or reading your Bible. All those things are good things. But that's not going to save you. The only thing that's going to save you is when you're broken Before God, and you realize, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's no other way for me to be saved. I'm tired of carrying around this load of guilt and this burden of sin. And I want to give it to you. You see this king's sentence here, because he had no answer. He gave an opportunity to answer. Once again, the patience, the grace of God. It said, the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. See, the king knew the rebellious nature of this guy. The king knew that if they just said, oh, sir, you're going to have to leave, sorry, and he put him out, probably five minutes later, the guy would find another way back in. So the king said, I'm not going to play games. This is the real deal. Bind this guy up and throw him out into outer darkness. Permanently expel him from the presence of the king and the king's people. says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That sinner is going to be regretting the fact that everybody's in there having a great time and he's in outer darkness bound 
gnashing his teeth. See, people think they're going to go to hell and have a party with their buddies. That's not going to be the case at all. In hell, you're going to realize the grief and the regret and the remorse of your sin in a way that is a billion times more than what you do now. But you know what? There's not going to be a thing you're going to be able to do about it. And that's going to go for eternity, beloved. Take away the physical nature of hell, what the Bible says about hell. The burning of the flesh that does not burn goes on and on and on for eternity. And he closes this statement quickly. For many are called, but few are what? Chosen. You know, people like that, and they they say that a lot of times. The call goes out to so many, but only a few are chosen. We don't believe in a universalist salvation. See, Paul often talks about the call in Romans when you read through Romans. And when he does, he's talking about that internal call. That's the true call to salvation. That's not what he's talking about here. The parable and the context of what he's referring to here is an external call. The call is going out. The gospel is being heard. But you know what? It's only those who are going to respond to it. Sent out to everyone. Some are indifferent. Some are hostile. Some try to barge their way into the kingdom on their own terms. Break through the gate somehow. but few are chosen. That word chosen introduces us to the sovereignty of God. We sang about it earlier. You are in control. I want you to understand this morning, there's a will. There's the will of of man in receiving the invitation. And there's also the will of man in rejecting the invitation. But I want you to clearly understand there's a perfect balance to that, and that's God's sovereignty. The Bible says, those who choose to come, come because they're chosen. And you say, well, do you understand that? No, I don't. No, I don't. Many are called, but few are chosen. But the Bible does say the broad road, many go that way. Many are rejecters of Christ. On the other hand, there's a narrow way and few are there that find it. Revelation 20.15 says, Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire, hell, to spend eternity. This is not a joke. This is not something you want to toy around with. If you've heard the truth this morning, I pray that you at least pray about the claims of Christ. It's not about this church. It's not about me as a pastor or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. It has about the truth of the gospel of Christ. What are you going to do with it? Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we pray this morning that you would supernaturally impose your will on us. Lord, this parable must have just been devastating for the people listening to it in Jesus' time. And yet, 
as we review it this morning and understand it more fully, it still rings true today. There are people that hear the invitation. They hear the gospel call go out. They understand it. They could even recite it back to us. And yet, there's no nothing. Father, I, I want folks to understand that uh, there comes a time in a person's life where they have to make a choice. You either choose to follow Christ in His ways or you go about it your own way. But you can't sit on the fence. You just can't. Father, we pray that you would minister your grace to the hearts of your people this morning. I pray that you would encourage people to come to you in a very real way, that they will investigate the claims of Christ, that they'll read your word for for themselves, that they will come to terms with their own sinfulness and discover your mercy and grace. And Lord, we just ask that you would uh, draw those to you. And we pray that as believers we would not forget our call to go out and to preach and teach the gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world, that that we would invite all to come and hear the glorious claims of Christ, that they too could be saved. What a glorious day that will be when we're all together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's hard to believe that some may not even be there. Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.